Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back, friend. Just in time for the new year. You know, I was looking at some of the YouTube comments on last week's episode, and I gotta say, I was a little surprised. Not one person was offended or even remotely disliked the story. Perfect marks all around. I'm telling you, Chester, we really nailed that one. Well, come on in, friend. Let's see what else we got. Hmm. <laughs> Alright, that's better. So tonight we welcome back our old pal Mario E. Martinez. It's been way too long, Mario. So smoke them if you've got them and drink those glasses to the bottom, y'all. Cause old Drew Blood has a tale to tell. Uh, a few of them, actually. Oh, hey. I didn't see you there. You know, Drew Blood's Dark Tales is only one of the many shows on this network you could be listening to. We hope you'll subscribe to our entire lineup, including Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, Fear from the Heartland, and Horror Hill. All available on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Also, visit simplyscarypodcast.com to become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you get our entire catalog ad-free and available to download or stream. A bargain. And now, back to the show. Mario E. Martinez has been with us since season one, 
and you'll remember him from some of our weirdest and most captivating stories, including The First Cup, A Whistle in the Dark, Grand Electric Gestures of Love, and We Sell Pickles. Our first one tonight is a dark tale of devotion, so without further delay, I give you Devotion to the Dead. The birth was a success. The little boy weighed a healthy eight pounds flat and had a tiny crop of black hair. Though the baby came out breached, Dr. Felix was able to save it. He cut the umbilical cord and washed the amniotic fluid off its pink skin. Smiling, the doctor wrapped it in the blanket. The room was small. Felix had added it to his home after his wife had gotten sick. With his wealth, he had built her a fully furnished hospital room with the latest in medical technology. Since her illness, he had kept it much the same, though now he had added a crib that, if needed, doubled as an incubation unit. Felix placed the infant into the crib and was glad he hadn't needed the incubator. This one would be strong enough to survive the trip. Can I hold him? The baby's mother asked from the bed. She looked older than she was. Her features were tired. The weathered skin strained across her face. The plumpness of her cheeks showed she had once forgone food in exchange for self-abuse. Her thin hair stuck to her forehead like spiderwebs. In a trembling voice, she told Dr. Felix, I don't... I just want to hold him a minute. That wasn't part of the agreement, he said, his tone even. Dr. Felix looked at her. He was a handsome man in his 40s, his frame fit in a paternal archetype. Yet there was a razor's edge to his stare. He wasn't annoyed, wasn't angry, but a severity hung about him that even the woman, doped up as she was, couldn't ignore. I know, I know she said, swallowing though her sandy throat made it difficult. I just wanted to... Caitlin, he said, adding a tinge of venom to her name. Need I remind you of our agreement? It had very explicit terms. No, I... I, I don't... I just thought... That... She muttered. Dr. Felix walked over to the side of the bed. The woman shrank a bit as though he were the shadow of death itself. Your thoughts are irrelevant, he explained. I didn't save your life, nurse you back to health, and spare no expense at either endeavor so you could give me your thoughts. Do you understand? You will be paid, yes? You'll be a very rich woman, right? So. I only wanted to look. He smiled down at her. The expression was devoid of warmth. Why did we make this arrangement if you cared to look? He asked. Why did I find you with a baby in your belly and a needle in your arm if you cared to look? I was on some heavy stuff. A bargain was made, he said right through her voice. The terms were set. Abide by them. He stepped away, sighing. She'd come to understand it as an imitation of emotion. He did them often in their time together. Dr. Felix tried to seem caring, helpful, and even understanding, but there was something in his stance, his mannerisms, that made her think it was all mimicry. Like he had watched people having genuine emotions, 
studied them and now pantomimed what he'd seen. He took a deep breath and exhaled slowly. I understand this all must be distasteful, he said, reaching into his pocket. He took out a black case no bigger than a pack of cigarettes. But think of all you're gaining. You'll never have to work again. Never have to stand on the cold corners hoping the next John won't kill you. And for what? Being treated like a queen for six months. Most people would do much worse for much less, I assure you. She couldn't look him in the eye. What are you going to do with him? She asked. Placing the case on her lap, he told her, That is not part of the agreement. Inside you'll find a bank card with a pin number. The money I promised is available. And there's a little something extra. Consider it a pardon gift. Don't worry, I can attest to its purity. Use it here if you'd like. You earned it. Now if you'll excuse me, we must be going. He turned his back to her and went to the infant. What do you want him for? She asked again, looking at the case in her lap. He scooped the child into his arms. That was not part of the agreement, he repeated. 2. Driving through the empty streets, Dr. Felix knew the woman would be dead before he returned. He had put the purest heroin he could buy in that case, and on the off chance she could tolerate that larger dose, he cut it with a little bromadiolone. When he had found her, she was so strung out, she was hardly a person, barely even an animal. Getting clean, she had screamed for it, even tried suicide a few times. Once she died for three minutes before he revived her. But once a month sober, she'd confided in him that it was her fourth try getting clean and that she saw Dr. Felix as a kind of savior. But he knew he was anything but a benevolent caretaker. All those years ago, he couldn't even save his wife Ivy. All his knowledge, all his money... All the priests and holy men and practitioners of the dark arts were impotent in the face of her malady. The medicines made her worse, the surgeries weakened her, and all the prayers and rituals did was transform her into a thing beyond saving. Something hopeless that lived yet had no life, a thing that wore his wife's skin but had none of her soul. Before long, there had been no place left for her to go. The asylums couldn't save her. Hospitals couldn't understand. Months after she stopped speaking, Dr. Felix decided to place her alongside other Felixes in the family crypt. The dead judged no one. They wouldn't scoff at what she'd become. They'd see her as lasting proof of her husband's devotion. Still, he hated thinking of her there because all it did was remind him of how beautiful she'd been before the sickness changed her. She used to wear the finest clothes, had closets filled from trips to Milan, New York, Harajuku. Now, whenever he brought her a new outfit, he'd see it shredded up in the corner with the other clothes he had gifted her over the years. Now, all her old skill with the makeup brush couldn't hide the waxing hue of her skin or how far her once vibrant eyes had sunk into her face. The thought clung to him as it always did, until he had reached the cemetery gates 
The groundskeeper had been paid to unlock the gates. He didn't even ask why a wealthy man wanted access to the graveyard every nine months or so. 3. Dr. Felix parked on one of the paths hidden from the main road and took the baby into his arms. It fussed a little since the sedatives he'd given it were wearing off. The night was cold, so the doctor held the baby to his chest as he stepped onto the hallowed ground, passing tombstones both old and new. He needed no lights. He could find the Felix crypt even in the dark. It stood over 15 feet tall with Grecian columns serving as the facade around its entirety. The full length of it was big enough for whole families of dead, or as he often mused, big enough for every Felix who'd ever lived except himself. The steps up to the heavy iron door were overgrown with sprigs of grass, but he had expressly told the groundskeeper to leave them. Looking neglected, no one would suspect anything was in the crypt other than legacies turned to dust. Dr. Felix stood in front of the door, adjusting the baby in his arms. Sweetheart, I brought you something, he called. Though no sound came from the other side of the door, he knew she was in there waiting eagerly for his visit. He took a key from his pocket and unlocked the chains on the door. At the sound of the heavy link, something within the crypt shuffled across the dusty floor. Its husky breath was both fearful and aggressive. Dr. Felix pried open the heavy door and winced at the stench of damp rot that came from the open portal. Once, she'd smelled like perfume. When the door was open enough to fit through, Dr. Felix shimmied inside and let his eyes adjust to the dark. The oppressive smell of the place prodded the baby awake. Its sedated cries were dreamy and weak. Still, they bothered the figure huddled in the corner. In the dark, it was an emaciated jumble of limbs, filthy nails, and a mess of oily brown hair that encased its head like a primitive diadem. It clawed the air from a corner piled up with ribbons of silk and chiffon. The baby cried louder. Dr. Felix cooed at the newborn. Shh, hush now. Don't be afraid. That's my wife, Ivy. She loves little babies. She wants to play with you. That's all. Isn't that right, love? He went down to one knee and laid the infant between them. Dr. Felix enjoyed none of what came next. The initial sniffing. The infant cries. The feasting. All of it while knowing it was his wife doing it. Sick as she was, those fingers that skewered the infant's new flesh were the same he had held when he had proposed. The lips, soon to be covered in gore, were the ones he had kissed before God and his family on their wedding day. The eyes he used to lose himself in would roll over white, and there'd be nothing human about her until the meal was done. Once it was all finished, her hunger sated, there'd be a brief moment when her eyes showed the same vibrant intelligence that had hypnotized him all those years ago. She'd look at him and her bloody lips would thin into a smile, and she'd almost say his name, 
almost tell him she loved him before reverting back to that scared thing huddled in the corner. He'd do anything for those precious seconds, those moments she'd be released from the hells heaped on her. She was his wife after all. Dr. Felix sat back against the nameplates of his distant ancestors and waited to see the eyes he fell in love with once more. As the scared thing in the corner crept closer, to examine his gift. And that was Devotion to the Dead by Mario E. Martinez. I swear, what we do for these women. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our next one is a tale of unpoetic justice. So again, from Mario E. Martinez, I give you Recipe for Revenge. Getting the unbaptized baby wasn't even the hardest part of Guzman's plot. That had actually been pretty simple. Guzman found some smuggler leading people through his 50 acres and paid the man with two old guns and a cheap bottle of tequila. Afterward, the smuggler snatched an infant from a woman's arms and gave it to Guzman. The smuggler punched the woman bloody when she fought back. The hardest part had been the wolf's mane. For that, Guzman had to drive into Dodd and order a mess of it from Mayela's nursery. The flowers took three weeks to arrive and were so expensive, Guzman had to eat stale tortillas and cans of beans for weeks. He hated his plain meals, but Guzman knew they'd be worth the inconvenience. The whole idea came from a curandera who drank at the bar down the road. Over drinks, she had told him of the skinwalkers of the shapeshifters of old and of their ancient recipes for acquiring such magic. 
the rituals, the ingredients, the words. Guzman kept the drinks flowing to get them all. She couldn't have known Guzman wasn't flirting, but instead scheming for revenge. For years, Guzman's neighbors had lodged complaints against him. Guzman's ranch was nestled in the center of four bigger plots. His acreage was full of garbage. He shot deer out of season. He cut their fences. He tossed bottles onto their property. And he grew ratty-looking weed. Because of Ms. Cooper of the Triple C, Mr. Boykin of Boykin Ranch, the Terrazas of Santa Cleotilde, and especially Hank Dobkin, the foreman for the Lazy F Cattle Company, Guzman owed thousands in fines and had spent off and on months in jail. He wanted to march up to their front doors, knock and shoot his neighbors the instant they opened up. But spiteful as he was, Guzman wasn't stupid. He knew if he killed one or all of his neighbors, the sheriff would pick him up within a day. Guzman had threatened them, had harassed them, and it was all on record. Until he talked with that curandera, Guzman thought he'd have to resign himself to wishing an operable cancer on his neighbors. But with the baby, the wolf's bane, and a wolf's skin from the taxidermist, the time was almost upon him because he wouldn't shoot his neighbors or stab them or beat them to death. Those things could come back to him, but with his shape-shifting recipe, his neighbors would die screaming all the same, and all the sheriffs in the world would look at the grisly scenes and conclude no man did it. The only thing that could tear people open like that was a bear or a cougar, or in Guzman's case, a wolf. 2. On the full moon, Guzman took his ingredients out to a secluded spot on his ranch. He combined the ingredients as the curandera instructed. First, he split the baby open and skinned it. The baby was weak from hunger and fought him as much as a dead jackrabbit. Guzman shaved the fat off the skin into a bucket of purple wolf's mane. He used a heavy stick to mash the mixture into a thick paste. By midnight, it was the correct consistency. Guzman spread the wolfskin on the ground and undressed in the light of the full moon. Naked, Guzman spread handfuls of the purple muck evenly across the inner lining of the wolfskin. With each pass, Guzman felt dark energy surging through his fingers. A tantalizing feeling that filled his mind with visions of terror-filled neighbors. When the entire skin was stained with the mix of wolfsbane and infant fat, Guzman picked up the fur by the forelegs and hung it on a low branch of a tree. He went back to the bucket and squatting beside it slathered his body with handfuls of the purple muck, his arms and legs and shoulders and even his face. Guzman retrieved the skin and lifted it over his head. He looked at the full moon and trembled with anticipation. Once he lowered the skin across his back, the ancient magic would grant him the power to change from man to beast and back again. He would be monstrous, undying. Already his mind was a tempest, swirling with ideas of immortality, of the centuries of solitude and retribution on all the generations of neighbors yet unborn. Lowering the skin, Guzman spoke. 
The curandera told him the actual words had little meaning, that the truest part of the bargain with the old gods was the bargainer's intent and the life destroyed. I made this bargain, Guzman called to the moon. Make fur of my flesh, make moonlight of my eyes, fangs of my teeth, and claws of my fingers, so I can have my revenge. The wind swirled. Overhead, an owl flew. Guzman thought them signs and covered himself in his new flesh. 3. Guzman lost himself to the power of the unholy ritual once the wolf skin was fully upon him. The aches and pains of his sixty hard years were gone, and all that was left was a feeling of invincibility. His muscles thrummed with vigor, his bones quieted, and even the dark seemed brighter. He looked at his hands and saw claws there. His tongue ran across a mouthful of fangs sharp enough to make the old gods bleed. Guzman howled at the moon and ran through the brush like something born in perfect unity with the Monty. He loped through the tall grass unafraid of the rattlers or the spiders and tore through the trees uncaring of the thorns snagging his flesh. His whole body was numb with power numb with bloodlust. He found the fence line separating him from the Lazy F cattle company. Guzman scaled it as easily as he would a gentle staircase and swung himself over the barbed wire without caution. On the ground once more, Guzman scanned the landscape and saw Hank Dobkin's house in the distance. He cut through an empty pasture and another occupied by over 300 head of slumbering cattle. Passing the dozing cows, Guzman clawed at their necks and their bellies. They woke startled, mooing wildly before running off, too dumb to know they were dying. Snarling, he tore at them with powerful claws until Guzman was sure he had killed so many not only would Hank Dobkin die, but the whole Lazy F cattle company as well. Guzman felt the wolf trying to take over his senses. It tempted him to chase the cows to leap on their backs and bite their necks, and Guzman almost did until a rifle shot pierced the sounds of his laughter. In a fury, Guzman saw Dobkin standing in his open doorway, rifle pointed in the air. The sight of Dobkin doubled Guzman over. His fangs gnashed and his claws wiggled because Dobkin would be the first of many and a pop gun in his hand would only get the man killed quicker. There would be blood. So much blood. Guzman howled and charged toward Hank Dobkin. Four. It was birthing season, so when the cattle started making noise, Hank Dobkin wasn't surprised. It was probably a pack of coyotes sniffing around for a stray calf. Though he doubted the little canines could get past the mother cows, half a ton apiece and hormonal, Hank got his 270 anyway. He didn't bother to put clothes on. He had heard the bovine ruckus and popped the safety off. Dobkin didn't fire straight up. 
instead shooting off in the direction of Guzman's place, thinking it wouldn't be so bad if he hit the mean son of a bitch by accident. Dobkin expected to hear a few nervous yips after the shot, and within a minute or two, the herd would quiet down and he could get some sleep for tomorrow's Brandon. What came out of the dark startled him. Ed Guzman was as Dobkin had never seen him. Sure, Guzman often wandered drunk, clad in only an undershirt, briefs, and a pair of boots on his property, but now the man was basically nude except for the animal skin across his shoulders and the purple muck slathered across his flabby body. Strange as it all was, the look in Guzman's eyes put Dobkin back a step. Those eyes were wide and intense and sank into Dobkin with a murderous intent. Guzman scratched at the air between them. He was talking half-formed words mixed with throaty growls and he snapped his jaws at Hank with each step. What the fuck are you doing, Guzman? Hank asked. Though he was still yards away, Guzman raked his fingers at Dobkin to scare him. Get back to your side of the fence before I get the sheriff, Hank said, gripping the rifle in both hands. I won't tell you twice. Guzman barked at him. Hank leveled his rifle. Get the fuck on or so help me. Guzman stared at the rifle barrel, and for a second Hank thought that would be the end of it. Guzman would leave and they'd return to giving each other dirty looks through the fence. But Guzman laughed like a man possessed. Another series of guttural sounds came from his mouth, and Guzman leaped, clawed fingers outstretched. <laughs> Hank pulled the trigger. The rifle was made to stop tougher things than men. The bullet caught Guzman a few inches beneath the collarbone and sent him into a half somersault. He landed face down in the dirt. Hank kept the rifle aimed at Guzman until some of the other cattlemen, some armed themselves, came out to see what had happened. They looked from Guzman, naked legs splayed out and dyed ass in the air, to Hank, who lowered his rifle by degrees. What happened? One of them asked. Hank leaned his rifle against the doorframe and shook his head. Call the sheriff. Tell him Ed Guzman finally lost his goddamn mind. Neighbors are such a pain in the ass. I hope you enjoyed Recipe for Revenge by Mario E. Martinez. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anyway, our third tale of the evening deals with workplace morale. Again, from Mario E. Martinez, I give you Thin Soup. Isidro hoped no one noticed the soup was thin today, but in a remote factory hundreds of miles from any town, not a lot went unnoticed. The workers were tired, aching from days on the line, and there wasn't much around for recreation. The soup is what kept them going on the long shift. Fourteen-hour stretches, six hours and fifty-five-minute shifts on either side of a ten-minute break. The soup kept the factory peaceful, and not just on the floor or at the docks, but in the barracks, too. If the soup was hearty like a chunky gravy, the factory was a paradise of productivity. The workers smiled at one another when the long lines passed for a shift change. The men shook hands and wished one another luck like two little league teams at the end of a game. There was laughter. If the soup was chunky, no one would even want to cheat at cards, and that's how management liked it. But the soup was thin today. That was no surprise, though. The soup simmered all day and reduced a little faster after each ladle, so buckets of water were poured into the pot after every lunch shift. Isidro had to do that a few times already, and the workers could tell. Isidro saw it in their eyes. They held their bowls like a beggar's dish as he poured them their soup. The weight was the first clue. It got them looking into the bowl, then the wrinkled brows started. The looks of suspicion, of wanting to ask what kind of trick Isidro was pulling. The looks would be all for a day or two before the snark came. But by the time management decided to look into it, and oh would they by the state of the soup, then snide remarks would be silly things to worry about in comparison. 2. It's a big pot and that means big responsibility, management had told Isidro and there was no lie to it. The soup pot was so huge, nearly 10 feet from base to lip, that a platform and a series of stairs were made specifically to get to the top of it. The burner beneath it that kept the soup at a low simmer was nearly a foot tall itself. It was a black iron relic of a bygone age, and a few times Isidro heard rumors of its fortune. The soup within, too, was mysterious and ancient, its beginnings unknown. Who first made it his mentor didn't know, nor did theirs, or the ones before. Isidro imagined some dusty ancient had set water to boil with meats and vegetables and spices to serve one shift. The management of then, no doubt, told them to add a bucket of water instead of meats or greens until there were complaints. Some vegetable chunks and meat scraps would follow until finally the soup would need a real thickening. That's when Isidro's assistant, Azalea, would be promoted, and he retired. 
The day of the looks, Isidro asked Azalea to bring flour and cornstarch because as much as management wanted the soup adequate, the pantry was more regulated than the shipments. The powders thickened the soup enough that no one looked at Isidro funny, though a few grumbled to management that the soup was like paste in their mouths. 3. Isidro felt management coming up the stairs before seeing him. Everyone called him management, but his name was Mitchell, a big old thing that waddled because of brittle knees and a big belly. Sometimes people called him Big Tom, but never to his face. He gave no good morning or so much as a how are you. Instead, he got to the soup pot and looked in. After a moment, he presented an old teacup, wide and cracked, and waited wordlessly. Isidro nodded, and with his big wooden ladle, mixed the soup around. Isidro could almost see through the morning's test pour, so he hoped the stern would make the soup thicker. Management got impatient and dipped the entire cup into the soup. He examined not just the soup pouring out of the cup, but the bits that clung to the cup's interior. Management divined the vegetable scraps and meat shreds before he brought the dripping cup to his mouth and touched the rim to his tongue. Smacking the flavor around his mouth, he eyed Isidro and spat the soup drippings onto the ground. The soup's thin, was all management said, yet Isidro knew the handful of words were worse than any he'd ever heard. The soup was thin, and the factory didn't like thin soup because thin soup was like an omen. Thick soup was a sign of good, productive days with everyone glad to be shoulder to shoulder with their peers. But thin soup was a distraction. The workers stopped focusing on their jobs and cared less for one another. They started counting what they had and compared it to the next guy and the next until they compared themselves all the way to Big Tom's managerial door. Workers stole Workers lied. Sometimes elbows bumped and before long the whole line was fighting and the conveyors had to be shut off. Isidro thought as management stomped down the stairs. At the bottom of the stairs, management passed Azalea, who stood with her head bowed. When management was gone, she rushed to Isidro and asked what Big Tom had said. Still looking at Big Tom's receding figure, Isidro replied, Tonight we need to check the traps. So soon? Isidro looked at her. The panic was clear in his wide, detached eyes. The soup is thin, he told her, and no more explanation was required. 4. Management and the cooks were the only ones who knew about the traps. Sure, the workers saw them around. They were all kinds, glue and snap and snare and seemingly they were tucked beneath every crate and pallet pile and dark corner of the factory. But only three knew the trap's double purpose. Being the lone building for miles and miles, all kinds of vermin were attracted to the factory and its garbage. Raccoons and rats, which in turn brought out the snakes. The lights attracted bugs, and the bugs then attracted bats. The traps were emptied into a chute that, to the rest of the factory's knowledge, led to an incinerator. In actuality, it led to a wash bin where the animals were skinned and butchered for the soup. 
But it was springtime, so all the rodents found easier meals elsewhere, and the bats were too clever to be caught by simple ground traps. Still, Isidro and Azalea walked the factory and checked the traps during their lunch. The two of them went through the factory floor as troops of men worked at gargantuan machines which produced and ingested as busy hands took full bins of raw product and made piles of it to be taken away. No one knew what the pieces were for, or what parts they attached to, or for what purpose. Together, Isidro and Azalea crawled beneath the machinery and scuttled through the shadows in hopes of getting enough meat to keep the workers quiet. At the end of the day, Isidro and Azalea met in the storeroom to inspect their harvest. Eight fat rats, a robin, and a toad. Maybe they'll do, Azalea offered. Isidro sighed. Sure, maybe they'll buy me some time, he said, unable to sound convincing. He butchered the vermin. Each time he stripped fur or organs, the meat shrank and shrank until the chunks hardly filled half a bucket. They were mixed with herbs, spices, and starches, anything to add mass. Even still, Azalea carried it up to the soup pot with barely a struggle, and when she dumped in the meat, it hardly made a splash. The water Isidro had to add only made it worse. He tried to tell himself that everything needed time to thicken, to marry, to become one with the soup. Isidro dreamed of the soup pot that night. The cafeteria was dark and he was alone. The pot bubbled unseen, but he heard it, smelled it, as he approached its song. Isidro's dream self walked up the steps of the platform, but once he reached it, he didn't want to see over the pot's rim. He already knew what was there. Faces. Dozens of faces. Eyes vacant and mouths open in agony, rising out of the soup like potatoes. One by one, the faces noticed Isidro, righted themselves and beamed as if in recognition of an old friend. Isidro woke when the final face turned to look at him. It was distorted by heat and wrinkles, but there was no mistaking that it was his own. It smiled and its dumb mouth formed words. The soup is thin. Isidro thought of his dream in the shower. There he turned the hot water up to near Scaldon and stood in it until he could endure it no longer. 5. The first to complain was a wimp named Giovanni. Normally Giovanni was a sheepish man of 180 pounds who somehow fit into spaces much smaller than his frame. Often he contorted himself between people in line or strafed the walls like they were mountain ledges to avoid even the appearance of rudeness. For him to scoff and say, Come on, this isn't soup, it's more like gruel, felt like justification for the others to join in. They skipping us again? One voice asked from the line. Well, goddamn course they are, someone responded from one of the long tables. It's always the same. Just enough to keep us quiet, but always, fucking always, skipping more and more. We don't want to do all the work, another complained. The agreement was deafening. Let's see what that fat-ass Big Tom eats, an old-timer cried. 
He's real good for a man who just sits in his office collecting a good check. Why don't we drag him down here and see how much of this soup he can stand? We'll goddamn drown him in factory hospitality. Soon pockets of people, narrowed-eyed and sneering, stood pounding the tables. From them a dizzy medley of violent ideas, of the best ways to show management just what they thought. But before they could tear the long tables apart or raid toolboxes for weapons, the thin soup worked this disruptive spell. Someone in the teeming mass tried snatching an unwatched bowl, and half a dozen arms seized him, crying, Cheat! Thief! Miserable cunt! And a pathetic voice rang out, He wasn't even eating it! Which was true, but not one of them cared. The soup was thin, and thin soup bore no brothers. The workers pulled the thief in all directions, punching and gouging, as some took the hot soup and poured it on his head like anointing oils before using the empty bowls to knock dents in his skull. And in the tumult, more thieves were caught, tried, and judged by their co-workers, who were now hardly more than hungry animals, until the room was a chamber of body heat and blood-red justice. Isidro watched in grim silence. He called Azalea to him and handed her his ladle. Without a word, Isidro untucked his shirt and unbuttoned the top button of it. Azalea stopped him. You don't have to, she begged. They can last. He looked at his apprentice and sighed. He swept his hand over the mass of them. The soup is thin. He stripped completely. He handed his apron, shoes, shirt, pants, socks, and underwear to Azalea. Isidro took back his ladle and clanged the side of the pot until the reverberations drew everyone's attention. Isidro walked to the edge of the platform and spoke in a calm, soothing tone. It's all right, everyone. On behalf of management, the factory has heard you and agrees. The soup is thin. If you allow us a few minutes, I believe we'll have solved the issue to your satisfaction. Management appreciates your patience. The workers, still half-beasts, attentively waited for Isidro. He passed the ladle back to Azalea. Remember what I told you, he said, taking the apron from her. If it's floating, it's not cooking. He slipped the apron over her head and tied it. Azalea held the ladle like a boatman's oar. Isidro went to the soup pot and found the only face in it was a reflection of his own. He had planned to climb over the rim and slide into the soup. He thought that'd be dignified. But on contact with the iron pot, he yelped and fell over the rim, landing in the soup with a splash. Isidro thrashed, screaming and gasping for air in one confused instant, but Azalea forced him under the surface with the ladle. The soup churned like an angry sea, and Azalea almost felt like she heard Isidro's last words in the short-lived steam bubbling up from the soup. Eventually, the soup calmed. If everyone would please line up, she called, her voice shaky. Management believes the soup will be to your satisfaction. And that was Thin Soup by Mario E. Martinez. A good reminder that we're all grist for the meal, aren't we? 
a little about the author. Raised on unhealthy doses of samurai movies, horror flicks, spaghetti westerns, and Conan the Barbarian comic books, Mario E. Martinez began his storytelling career early in life. He currently teaches English at his hometown university in South Texas, Giggity, where he lives. His debut novel is Twin Burials, written in 2011. In December of 2012, he published his first collection of horror stories, San Casimiro, Texas, followed by Pig Name Orinius and Other Strange Tales, and Ash Tree. He's been featured on Drew Blood's Dark Tales since season one, and for that alone, he deserves your support. He's got another book coming out called The Chickens That Are Not Their Chickens, which we will be sure to keep you posted about. For now, check him out on Instagram at TheMarioMTZ. Thanks, Mario. And do old Drew Blood a favor, would you? Subscribe to his podcast wherever you do your listening and leave him a five-star review and a kind word, even if you're listening on YouTube. He needs soldiers on all fronts to win this battle, and he appreciates it. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all the other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click Patrons in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at ChillinTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to their entire audio archive, all ad-free and available to download or stream. Thank you for your time and for supporting our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you support this show. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there where you'll get all the latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with them each and every week. Oh, and you can find Drew Blood on Facebook and Instagram, and sometimes Twitter. The Drew Blood's Dark Tales podcast is accepting submissions, friend. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on the show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get the full treatment, 10 Bananas. Well, I'm afraid this is where we part ways, y'all. At least till next week. So grab a drink for the road, friend. And buckle up. 2024 looks like it's gonna be a doozy. So may the wind be at your back, and may the road rise up to meet you. I'll see you all next year, and until then, go fuck yourselves. (laughs) I bet y'all didn't see that coming. Good night, y'all. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.